Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along We've got a really passionate advocate and dynamo of an author and speaker for today's Spirit in Action program. We'll be talking this week and next to Vasu Murti. Vasu was born in the USA from parents who came here from India and himself became involved with the Krishna consciousness movement as a young adult. So he brings to us observations from a religious spiritual vantage point not often encountered here. Vasu has produced a number of articles, papers, and books addressing two main concerns, our treatment of and diet of animals, and a concern about abortion. He examines and marshals an imposing set of evidence and reasoning in favor of vegetarianism and opposing abortion, and he draws on Eastern religion, on Western religion, and also uses purely secular sources and arguments. Vasumurti is an authentic and adamant liberal, so these are not the arguments that you've heard from many in the so-called pro-life movement. His first book was They Shall Not Hurt or Destroy, Animal Rights and Vegetarianism in the Western Religious Traditions, and the other published book is The Liberal Case Against Abortion. Vasumurti joins us from his home in California. Vasu, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. Your books are so impressive for the broad expanse of knowledge they encapsulate and for the rigorous logic that's included in them, and also for the spiritual content. It's very seldom that you find all of those components in a single book. Can you give me a little bit of background as we go into this about yourself and how you came to both have these opinions and where you've accumulated this knowledge from? If you're referring to the two published books thus far, The Liberal Case Against Abortion, and prior to that, They Shall Not Hurt to Destroy, I became vegetarian uh, while in college, being raised in a Hindu-American family. When we would travel to India, we would live as vegetarians, so I was exposed to vegetarianism at a young age, and the whole moral issue of killing animals for food, clothing, sport, etc., and we had also been exposed to secular vegetarian literature as early as junior high um, in the People's Almanac, in Diet for a Small Planet, Laurel's Kitchen, and other related materials as well that kind of drove home the point that you know eating meat is unnecessary. At a time in the 70s when people were speaking about grass-fed beef as an alternative to grain-fed to make grain available to feed the hungry, uh, others were asking, certainly within the Indian community, why should people be eating beef at all? Why should we be killing cows or any animal for that matter? So I was exposed intellectually to the idea that it's wrong to kill animals at a young age, but it wasn't until I got to college that I became serious about it. The uh, nuclear freeze movement was happening at the time. 
by becoming a vegetarian, I felt I was making a statement about peace and nonviolence. And it was common, even in the 80s, uh, to find vegetarian groups on campus. There was an on-campus food co-op that had natural foods available. It wasn't strictly vegan. That wasn't pretty much on anyone's agenda at the time. But it was vegetarian, as was a local student-run vegetarian restaurant on campus, the Che Cafe, named after Latin revolutionary Che Guevara. A friend of mine from high school, Greg Sims, second youngest of seven children, raised um, in a devout Catholic family. His older sister, Claire, had become born again in the 70s. He uh, was the one who got me interested in both religion and politics. He's also a Jimmy Carter fan. As time grew on, he was the one who got me interested in religion and politics, and we found our only two points of, real points of contention were reincarnation and vegetarianism. And that was kind of motivated me to look into the religious arguments, because some people, they'll bring up the religious arguments, and they're like, well, didn't God give us dominion over the animals? Didn't God command animal sacrifice? You know, what about the miracle of the loaves and the fishes? Doesn't Jesus sanction the killing of animals for food in doing that, etc., etc., and so forth? These arguments would come up repeatedly, and they still do appear on PETA's website, for example, www.jesusveg.com. There's a question and answer section where you know Christians and people of other faiths can ask questions along these lines. And a lot of these questions do arise, and the staff over at PETA try to answer them as best they can. So these questions would naturally arise. And back then, there were virtually no books on animals and theology to speak of in, during the first half of the 80s and everything. So I began doing the research along these lines. I was inspired by an article that had appeared in uh, the Los Angeles Times in 1985 by Russ Chandler of the Los Angeles Times, November 1985. It was entitled, Churches Asked to Consider the Feelings of Animals, and it spoke about the formation of INRA, INRA, the International Network for Religion and Animals, which had been recently founded. One of the founders being Dr. Michael Fox of the Humane Society, who had a column, Ask Your Animal Doctor. And one of his columns, he spoke about, he wondered if animals have souls, and he was saying the song of the humpback whale could be considered a sign that animals have a souls, intelligence, etc. And the response he generated was, no pun intended, a whale of a response, but with that column. And a lot of it was very favorable. And he and another woman listed in the article as Ginny B. They had together had founded the, the International Network for Religion and Animals and had brought a, a diverse coalition of religious communities on board. And said, of course, predictably, they were drawing ridicule from agribusiness, factory farmers, and so forth, and you know the animal exploitation industries. But it was uh, it was interesting because that was one of the things that helped spur me into action into compiling the arguments for you know why the religious communities ought to be on board with regards to animal issues. The book itself was a result of several years' worth of research. Even after that, it took me years to find a publisher. Finally, Steve Kaufman, head of the Christian Vegetarians Association in Cleveland, Ohio, was kind enough to uh, publish the book. Steve is raised Jewish and you know, converted to Christianity. He's with the United Church of Christ, a pro-choice Protestant nomination, and the Christian Vegetarian Association is like 4,200 members strong. He was kind enough to finally publish the book. Bruce Fried of uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, he was kind enough to write the preface and he came from the Catholic worker community and had, been, had joined PETA after uh, finishing up his education, his bachelor's degree at Grinnell College in Iowa. So he wrote the preface. The late Janet Regina Highland, author of God's Covenant with Animals, which is also available through PETA, she wrote the, was kind enough to write the foreword and um, I made it a point to distribute copies profusely. As I commented at the, toward the end of the liberal case against abortion, 
you know, I see two parallel movements here, similar to those of like women's rights and civil rights. We have two causes: the animal rights campaign, which a lot of people think of, you know, a lot of uh, certainly in Christian circles, many Christians are unaware of the long history of animal advocacy and concern for animals within the within the biblical tradition. You know, not just often neglected passages within Scripture, but also the entire tradition of concern for animals. They're unaware, like four of the early church fathers wrote extensively on the subject of vegetarianism. Uh, the ones who immediately come to mind, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, and there were others as well, St. Basil, and others who have written favorably of the subject and so forth. They're unaware. Dr. Holly Roberts, a Jewish scholar with a master's degree in Christian theology, published in 2004 her book, uh, Vegetarian Christian Saints, which describes the lives and teachings of over 150 canonized vegetarian Christian saints. They're unaware that Protestant reformers spoke favorably of animals, Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin, for example, and that John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was a vegetarian. They're unaware of the Quaker poets and pacifists and abolitionists who were veg-friendly and supportive of compassion for all creatures. And into the, into the 20th century, Dr. Robert Schweitzer, a giant in Christian theology among theologians, spoke favorably of animals and so forth. And current trends in animal liberation theology, of course, you know, many Christians are unaware of this. Mainline Protestant, uh, Catholic and Protestant theologians are addressing the issue. Peter was pleased when Father John Deere was kind enough to contribute a pamphlet you know, about Christianity and animals for PETA, and they're hoping other Catholic priests would follow his example. And similarly, Baptist theologian Dr. Richard Allen Young authored a book in 1999 asking, is God a vegetarian? According to the Bhagavad Gita, the answer is yes. But without looking into Eastern religions, many Christians are unaware of how mainstream these views are, and that many of the people who make up the animal rights and welfare movement are, you know, their brothers and sisters in the Christian faith, as it were. So it's important that the word get out. When you mention animal rights, a lot of people, especially among Christian circles, they're not aware of the whole history of the tradition. That, for example, in, in the 19th century, Reverend Mike Sean Canada pointed out, in the 19th century, it was the Christians who were leading the way with regards to animal rights and vegetarianism. The Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the RSPCA, was founded in London as a Christian society, sponsoring humane education services and sermons throughout the London area. In 1824, it was founded by Reverend Arthur Broom, an Anglican clergyman, and um, most people, most Christians are unaware of that. In the, in the 19th century, the Christians were leading the way with regards to vegetarianism and animal rights. Today, the secular people are leading the way, and Christians are unaware of the long history of animal advocacy in their own tradition. And if you just try and discuss animal rights and vegetarianism apart from religion, just as a purely ethical issue, they often react by going, move. That kind of response, of course, is unfortunate. You know, you, what do you think of when you think of move? I mean, you might think, you know, well, it sounds kind of, you know, like soulless or devoid of any kind of religious inspiration, just kind of, you know, secular and impersonal or what have you, etc. But actually, many Christians are unaware of the long history and concern of compassion for animals within their own religious tradition. There's no need for them to take up to any, take up an Eastern religion or convert to Judaism or whatever kind of apprehensions they might have about what it means to be a religious vegetarian or believe in reincarnation for that matter. Matter. When I gave a, lecture, a talk on religion and animals before the San Francisco Vegetarian Society in February 2001, I said that I deliberately chose to focus on the Western religious traditions because for too long the stereotype 
of religious vegetarians, quote-unquote, is that they're all followers of Eastern religions, believing you might be reincarnated as a cow in your next life if you're not careful. Uh, this drew a chuckle from the audience, and I said I want to show that the Western religions also support the vegetarian way of life. So for many Christians looking for guidance and inspiration in this regard, without having to think of becoming a vegetarian or vegan, you know, it can be a secular thing, like supporting an organization like PETA. Even now, the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and the Humane Society, mainline animal welfare groups are now advocating a vegetarian diet, the banning of fur, an end to cruel animal research, which is a step in the right direction, but um, as opposed to saying all animal research is unethical because it's morally wrong to experiment on animals, just it's comparable to what the Nazis did to the Jews or what white humans once did to black humans, but at least by acknowledging that some animal experimentation is completely unnecessary, cosmetic testing, etc., and so forth, at least that's a step in the right direction. There's a wealth of arguments that you could bring up right now, and before you go into those, I want to make sure I'm clear about where you come from. It's clear to me that you're absolutely passionate about this. Do you think that your passion comes from logic, from religious or spiritual devotion, insights, or maybe all of them together? What's it for you? I think it's a combination of all of the above. On the one hand, my theological understanding and orientation, if you will, from the Eastern religions Pandita Samadarshana is the exact Sanskrit in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 5, verse 18. The learned man, the pundit, or the wise man sees with all, sees with all living entities with equal vision. The bodies we're temporarily residing in, you know, have nothing to do with the soul, which, tra- which can transmigrate from body to body. So that understanding is the basis for a real liberation theology, a theology of seeing all living entities with equal vision. So that is the basis for vegetarianism and nonviolence. And even Gandhi said that his belief in, because of the belief in reincarnation, he said he couldn't conceive of any kind of permanent enmity between friends and nations because of that. And we see even in the material world, on day-to-day basis, just in mundane activities, people form friendships and they may become enemies at one point and then they're friends again later or what have you. And even in a cynical standpoint, you know, remember 1984, George Orwell was saying, the has always been at war with East Asia, etc. When they were previously they were friends with them and at war with Eurasia, etc. So these things are constantly changing and so that was what caused one of the things that caused Gandhi to observe was a belief in reincarnation that no one could ever be in a permanent state of enmity with anyone. It's, this kind of enlightened theology can you know, inspire you to, into action that way, but also even on, uh, just in terms of on a passionate level of being an abolitionist, early PETA literature pamphlets and stuff from the 80s were saying, join PETA and join history in the making. And, um, Gary Francione was saying in Harper's Magazine when interviewed in 1988 as a law professor, he was saying as more people understand it, it will, it will become the civil rights movement of the 21st century. So as soon as the 21st century hit, right after the Y2K scare, animal rights groups were, you know, were putting out bumper stickers and, and T-shirts and everything saying, it's the 21st century and you're still eating animals? Like that's a you know, holdover of the caveman days and everything. And it's very easy to be caught up in a passionate cause. And also, it's the simplest cause to take up. It doesn't involve any kind of dramatic change in way of life and everything. In a poem by uh, Roberta Kalachowski of Jews for Animal Rights pointed out that merely by ceasing to eat meat, by practicing restraint, we have the power to end a painful industry. We do not have to go to meetings or demonstrations or give donations. We don't have to go to sit-ins. So many other forms of social progress and change require all kinds of activism, as it were, pounding the pavement, what have you, and so forth. But here's, you know, just merely by ceasing to eat meat, we have the power to end a painful industry. River Phoenix made a statement along these lines when he was interviewed by Vegetarian Times in the late 80s. He was saying there are other social justice issues as well, political prisoners and so forth, but this is an issue where we actually have control over things. You know, by just deciding what we want to eat, we can have a direct impact on things. He asked, how many things do we really have control over? 
You know, you can say, like, you know, can we really influence government policy? In a democracy, you ought to be able to. If, that we, if you think a war is unjust, you ought to have the freedom to protest it, etc. But how many things do we really have? Can we affect change yet? But this is an area where each of us can make a difference directly. When my brother was attending USC, the University of Southern California, as a grad student, he sent me an article from, like, 1988 or 89, and one of it was an article that appeared in the local school paper. It was talking about animal rights and saying, joining this movement is as simple as your next meal. And we see this in other causes as well. Oxfam America, as a charity group that's involved in the anti-hunger campaign, asking students and people who are involved in their campaigns to skip a meal or and so forth to make grain available for the hungry, etc. But of course, vegetarians are doing that all the time because when you consider the waste of grain and resources that go into a meat center diet. So there are all kinds of social justice issues that have the killing of animals at the root cause of all these other social injustices. And it, rather than trying to address each of these crises separately, you know, global warming, global hunger, the energy, environmental population, and water crises, merely by ceasing to eat meat, they're all taken care of in one fell swoop. Even if you argue, somebody says, well, that's a bit too fanciful or far-fetched, etc., the statistics show that it would make a world of difference. Francis Moore LePay, who authored Diet for a Small Planet in 1971, which brought this attention, uh, John Robbins points out the Vietnam War was winding down, and um, Francis Moore LePay tapped into widespread public sentiment in this regard as during that time period. In a vegetarian video from the early 80s, I can't remember if it was Vegetarian World, which was narrated by William Shatner, or if it was Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, in one of these videos, she says, I don't think a vegetarian diet will automatically be a magical cure-all and solve all the world's problems, but it will give us determination to be able to deal with these problems much more effectively, or some statement to that effect. But actually, the statistics suggest it would make a significant difference in addressing these various crises. So it's an area that can't be ignored. And many who are interested in vegetarianism, I think it would make a world of difference. The purpose of They Shall Not Hurt or Destroy was twofold, to bring animal rights and vegetarianism into the mainstream, into the churches, synagogues, and mosques, as it were, so that the, you know, they, when they address social justice issues, they can see the direct relevance, and also to provide animal activists with inspiration for their own activism. Um, Bob Dylan, of course, wrote a song called, you know, With God on Our Side, and, you know, some of the worst crimes in history were committed in the name of religion, but if you can actually see that, you know, actually, you know, the, the world's great scriptures do support the vegetarian way of life, it would make a world of difference, you know, for animal activists in this regard, you know, like, you have the blessings and support of organized religion, I think that would make a world of difference. I remember in the 70s, in the People's Almanac, they were saying that there was an article about meditation, and they were saying how prayer is when you talk to God, meditation is when you listen. And they were saying that meditation is endorsed by all the world's great religions. So it would be great if that were to happen with vegetarianism as well. So for you personally, Vasu, are you vegetarian or are you vegan? Vegetarian, I would like to be vegan. I found I can, you know, it's a lot of times it's easy to make real simple substitutions like uh, using, uh, I prefer almond milk, but there's hemp milk and rice milk and soy milk and so many other different kinds of non-dairy milks out there. But I, I use almond milk on my cereal. I can make simple substitutions like that. Use non-dairy margarines. Earth Balance is a good brand. You can now find them at Trader Joe's and even at the local supermarkets. You can now find non-dairy cheeses, cream cheeses, things that didn't exist before in mainstream supermarkets, sausage patties, tofurkey, lunch meats, and so many other things that didn't exist before. So it's really easy to make these kind of substitutions. So with that in mind, why are you not vegan? I was for a few years in 1995 and had trouble sticking to it. I find it's better to be honest about what you're at than being a hypocrite. 
And I agree, we should all be vegan, you know, unless you're living on a, a, a dairy farm somewhere, like in a rural village, like the Amish or what have you, and you have, you know, you're taking care of the cows personally. For those of us who are living in uh, congested urban metropolises, there, it really doesn't make any sense not to be, because the, uh, the commercial dairy products, the animals are exploited like anything. So I agree, we should all be vegan. And uh, I can see the logic, because even before I had ever learned about veganism, I, just by being vegetarian, I felt it was inconsistent in the, during the 80s and everything to be wearing leather. If you're morally opposed to killing animals, and that's the reason for your vegetarianism, why would you be wearing leather when, you know, a cow has to die to pretty, so for you to wear that? The logical conclusion of all this is veganism. I did do veganism for a while. I've been vegetarian for, what, 35 years now. Fantastic. But veganism I found hard because I really value butter and I really value cheese, and the alternatives to it just are not the same. A good ghee is far better than any margarine. Yeah, it is problematic, especially with ghee being used within Hinduism for religious sacrament purposes and everything. It is kind of it is problematic. Of course, India itself, agrarian India, is an animal-based culture, and that's one criticism that was leveled at animal activists by Kathleen Marquardt. She founded Putting People First, which was an anti-animal rights group, and in 1993 she wrote a book called Animal Scam: The Beastly Abuse of Human Rights. She was giving all the usual hand-wringing and fear-mongering about animal rights, like. Uh, you know, the movement will determine whether or not we will ban new medication that would determine whether or not we live or die. And it's kind of like, well, you can make the same accusations about when banning white humans experimenting on black humans or banning the Nazis from experimenting on Jews, etc. So she's doing all the, you know, the, the fanatical hand-wringing about animal rights. But she, um, she, at one point she claims animal activists are indifferent to the plight of animal-dependent cultures. Now, how true that is, I don't know. That could be the subject of an entire book in itself, the argument that um, animal activists don't care about native cultures and so forth. How many native cultures exist today? The macaw, you know, there's a lot of fuss about them going whaling and everything, I remember, but they were, you know, hadn't hunted in over a century, and they were calling a return to tradition, you know, had actually ended a century earlier. And whether it was proper for that to have happened, whether that was the interference by the white society or whatever that didn't have to happen and so forth, is, is of course, another matter entirely, but it's like, why resume a practice if it's unnecessary in this day and age in the name of tradition, and especially when so many injustices were commit, have been committed in the past by probably societies around all over the world in the name of tradition. That just strikes me as kind of absurd. Jeremy Rifkin in Beyond Beef, and also Stephen Rosen in Holy Cow, where he documents the uh, contribution of the Christian conscious movement to the animal rights movement. He quotes from Jeremy Rifkin as describing agrarian India as an animal-dependent culture. So the argument that animal activists are insensitive to animal-dependent culture, I don't know how true that is. If I recall correctly, Rosen himself, when interviewed by abolitionists online in Australia, he said that there is no real need for the Christian temples in the West to be using dairy products. That might be true of India, which is an agrarian society and so forth, but outside it really isn't that necessary. And so many other innovations have happened within the Vaishnav tradition or worship of Lord Vishnu, that, you know, innovations, you know, for, to um, preach the gospel as it were, you know, using automobiles, traveling to the West, etc. There's a uh, command in, in, within Hinduism that monks, sannyasis, aren't supposed to cross water to travel and so forth and all. But a lot of these things, depending on time, place, and circumstance, can be altered or even ignored depending on the situation, etc. I'm not in a position to make these kind of pronouncements, but it seems to me that veganism would certainly be a logical conclusion. 
our uh, spiritual master, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, in his purports or commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, he doesn't rule out dairy products. In fact, he is considered pure because the cow is considered sacred. But he also says slaughter is the way of the subhumans, that you know, only, only like Pythagoras said, only beasts satisfy their hunger this way. And even that isn't true of all animals because sheep and cattle live on grass. Those were Pythagoras' words. And similarly, our spiritual master said slaughter, killing animals for food, is the way of the subhuman. It's cruel, it's barbaric. But he also speaks favorably of milk products. So the only conclusion you can come to when he's saying these things, practically speaking, in the same sentence or in the same breath or whatever, is that the only conclusion you can come to is that if you're going to use dairy products, they have to be obtained humanely. If that's possible to do on a huge scale with you know, a human population worldwide in the, in the several billions, I don't know. To me, veganism just seems logical. You know, if you're worried about things like pesticide residues accumulating higher on the food chain, that's going to be true of dairy products as well as meat. It's going to be true of eggs, dairy products, etc., any animal byproduct. What to speak of the energy consumption involved, the resources involved, water, etc., and so forth, soil. Just by eating higher off the food chain, you're going to have these problems. So it, seems, it, may, not, it may not be as concentrated or as severe in dairy as than with meat itself. But to me, veganism seems like the only rational course of action in this regard. Of course, I'll defer to people more knowledgeable than I in this regard as to how essential it is or how crucial it is, at least within the Hindu tradition. But it seems to me, if we're going to be telling others, like, you know, well, you shouldn't kill cows, you shouldn't kill animals by law of karma, as long as they're killing the cows and the other animals in the slaughterhouses, there'll be wars, there'll be abortions. These are the collective karma for killing animals. And we're telling people of other faiths not to kill animals. So we say, well, don't kill cows. And say, well, you're trying to convert me to your religion because you believe the cow is sacred. We say, don't kill any animal, you know, which is the ideal. Don't kill any animal. Then that leads inevitably to veganism because unless you can obtain animal byproducts humanely, that inevitably leads to veganism. So, and secular organizations are already doing this. So for Christians who are interested in being nonviolent to humans and animals alike and who um, don't want to contribute to animal suffering, but they don't want to be converted to another religion, it's understandable. They, they're welcome to join any number of secular organizations, PETA, the Humane Society, the ASPCA, In Defense of Animals, Friends of Animals, Last Chance for Animals, Mercy for Animals, Vegan Action, Vegan Outreach, etc. There's so many organizations they could join and be supporting. When you consider the long history of animal advocacy in Christianity, to me, and I'm hoping that uh, a book like They Shall Not Hurt or Destroy would facilitate this kind of discussion, bring it up for discussion, not only for ourselves as, uh, as Hindus or as Buddhists and Jains and the Eastern religions where these doctrines of compassion for animals are more pronounced. Some scholars believe that's because of the belief in reincarnation. But in any case, to me, it's as reasonable as someone from a pro-life church discussing sanctity of life issues with someone from a pro-choice church. That's how mainstream I see it when you look at the long history of animal advocacy within Christianity. I'd like to take a side trip looking at some of the Eastern religion stuff, because I think that people here in the USA who are listening to this program are likely to be less informed about stuff from the East. I mean, you mentioned karma, and I'm not sure that people here really know what karma is. Would you like to explain how karma might relate to this idea of vegetarianism or perhaps to abortion? Karma is the is the law of cause and effect, like uh, Newton's law of action and reaction. I think it was the third law that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. It's tied to the belief in reincarnation that the soul is distinct from the physical body and transmigrates from body to body. 
and our desires carry us into our, our particular body at the time, you know, out of this one into the next one at the time of death. And depending upon our deeds that we do in this lifetime, whatever we inflict upon others or whatever we do to others comes back to us. So, you know, like the biblical admonition, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. And even in Romans, the Apostle Paul says, God rewards each one according to his deeds. So if you inflict suffering upon others, that will come back to you. If you do good to others, then that will come back to you as well. That it automatically provides an explanation as to what appeared to the apparent injustice in the world. Why some people are born into wealth and privilege, and others into uh, handicapped or in poverty, etc. All these injustices in the world. We all have different histories from previous lifetimes, etc. And we're living out the karma not only of, of just our immediate past life, but of, of billions of past lives prior to that as well. So when you have an understanding of karma and reincarnation and you realize, then, you know, anyone who understands how the laws of nature are operating is automatically a vegetarian because they realize that if they inflict that kind of misery upon other living entities, it's going to come back to them in future lifetimes. So there is heavy karma in not just in abortion, but in also in the killing of animals as well. In fact, it's because of the killing of animals that we have an abortion crisis. To put this into Western theological language and or secular arguments that are familiar to pro-lifers, pro-lifers speak of the slippery slope and the idea that acceptance of abortion leads to a devaluation of life and paves the way towards acceptance of infanticide and euthanasia. We merely say the slippery slope begins with what we do to animals and that kind of mentality, treating life cheaply that way, it fosters the kind of mentality that makes abortion possible. The idea that life can easily be disposed of. And we can see it because that's the pro-choice mentality. In 1986 when there was debate about abortion on Usenet, John Morrow of Rutgers University compared abortion to slavery saying just as the Dred Scott decision of 1857 denied rights to an entire class of humans based on the color of their skin, Roe v. Wade denied rights to an entire class of humans because of their age and developmental status. So the parallel was drawn between abortion and slavery. Dave Butler of Tektronix in Oregon immediately responded, abortion and slavery? Not even close. A fetus isn't human. If you believe it's wrong to eat meat, should your morality be imposed upon everyone else? Now, of course, that begs the question, what if it is wrong to eat meat? I, what if, he was taking it for granted that the killing for, of animals is natural and inevitable. What if it isn't? What if that is a form of prejudice or discrimination or what have you? It's, to me, the argument not even close is like someone in the 19th century trying to justify the subjugation of women by appealing to slavery as though slavery were a legitimate institution. If you first question the premise that you know, killing animals is morally acceptable, that changes the dynamics of the whole equation. You know, you've explained to us, Sue, about how karma works, the, the law of reaction, but you haven't said what that reaction is in terms of karma. What does that mean if I've built up a lot of bad karma? What happens to me? Good karma or bad karma, depending on the severity of it, there are rewards and punishments in the afterlife. Within the material world, there are higher planets where you know one can enjoy godly delights, the nectar of the gods, as it were, and the pleasures are of a heavenly nature. And then similarly, there are planets of torment, you know, hellish, where people endure suffering if they've incurred huge amounts of uh, negative karma. That's that is where they suffer for some time before being reborn as a plant or as an animal or as a human being, etc. Depending upon their karma. So the punishment is not eternal. And Dr. Martin A. Larson, again, he's an atheist, or he well, I don't know if he's still alive. He was old back in the 70s when his books were written. He noted that according to Hindu, Buddhist, and Pythagorean tradition, hell itself was actually a kind of purgatory, a place where living beings are punished before being reborn somewhere else. The idea of eternal punishment doesn't exist within the Eastern religions. Of course, I'm sure you've been confronted with the question, and I've seen in some of your writings where you've confronted this. You start by saying, okay, it's not good to eat meat because you're killing a living thing, there's karma. Then the immediate question that person 
has directed to me in the past, in fact, is, well, so then you're going to kill plants. Isn't that wrong? Isn't that karmic? Mm-hmm. If you're for discussing theology, uh, within Hindu theology, I've gotten different answers. One response was that, yes, there's karma in killing plants, which is why there's the process of offering one's food to God in sacrifice. And in Bhagavad Gita, the Lord says the kind of food he will accept as an offering. The other response I've gotten is that plants were intended to be our food, etc. And so the real sin lies in not presenting the food as an offering, not acknowledging God as the source of, you know, our sustenance, you know, like um, our spiritual master said, when Christians pray, you know, give us this day our, our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, you know, that Jesus taught, they're acknowledging their dependence on God. Man can create microchips and steel, but he can't create food. Well, when you're living in urban metropolises, you know, you might think, well, your food comes from Safeway or what have you, but actually, you know, it, we are dependent on God in this regard. Our spiritual master once gave the example about how in the communists would seize power in countries by asking people, well, go to your churches and pray to God for bread, and they'd go that has God given you any bread? And they go, no. And then they come around with a truck around the corner and give them loaves of bread and say, well, we're communists, we're giving all this bread, so who's better, your imaginary God or our, you know, us as communists? And the people would say, oh, you communists are much better, etc. And they'd be duped and everything. And Israel Prabhupada would say, well, now wait a minute, you, they didn't obviously aren't thinking properly. It's like in this current age of ours, they aren't thinking things through. They didn't ask, well, who, where did you get this bread from? Who provided the soil and the rain and the, and the seeds and the sustenance, etc.? You didn't create these things out of thin air. So similarly, you know, when you're living close to the land and in nature, it's very easy to understand that you're dependent upon God. But in uh, this day and age, we've kind of pushed that off to the side. We just think, oh, yeah, food comes from Safeway or what have you. And even among Christians, there's the idea that, you know, living close to the land is a back-to-the-Bible way of life. How easy that would be to implement in this day and age, I don't know. Even in the third world, people are migrating into the cities, looking for work and becoming unemployed and living on the streets and rags and what have you. But in any case, we can understand that, you know, we're dependent upon God for these things. So I've gotten two different answers, that there is karma in killing plants, but it's certainly not as severe as in killing animals. There is a hierarchy of sorts with regard to the killing of living entities and all. But at the same time, even in Jainism, they recognize they distinguish between one-cent beings and five-cent beings, etc. So that's the theological answer, is that you know if we offer everything in sacrifice to God and center our lives around God, then we're protected from all of this sin. We can see that practically. Uh, if we're vegetarian because in the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna says he accepts these kinds of food as offerings, then everything else follows automatically from that. It's better for the environment, it's better for the animals, for our health. The secular argument, of course, articulated, it was probably made well before that, but Peter Singer was the one who put it succinctly in 1975 in Animal Liberation. He says that if you argue, what about the killing of plants? It's hard to see how plants would be able to feel pain when they lack a brain or a central nervous system. Uh, Keith Akers pointed out years later that nature does not create pain gratuitously, but only when it enables an organism to survive. Plants being immobile would have no evolutionary need to feel pain. But on top of that, Peter Singer points out that if you eat meat, you're eating higher off the food chain, you're killing 10 times more plants than if you were vegetarian. So vegetarianism is even better for the plants because fewer of them are being killed. And Singer says at this point, the argument becomes absurd. And I have to agree, even back in the 80s, in the 80s and used that, I was saying people who make that argument, well, it's wrong to kill plants, they are really looking for just for a lame excuse to continue killing animals. But at least they're thinking it through. They're realizing that the reason people become vegetarian is because they're morally opposed to killing animals. It isn't just following a peculiar set of dietary laws, some foods can't be eaten, they're unclean or whatever, and other foods can, but rather the idea is that you're morally opposed to the taking of life, the killing of an animal, because for them to ask that kind of a question means that they're aware that that's the real reason people become vegetarian. 
I've got a lot more questions for you, Vasu, but I best uh, let people know that they're listening to an interview with Vasu Murti. He's the author of a number of books and articles and pamphlets. One of them is They Shall Not Hurt Nor Destroy Animal Rights and Vegetarianism in the Western Religious Traditions. He is himself from Eastern Tradition. He's also the author of The Liberal Case Against Abortion, which we'll be talking about later. This is Spirit in Action. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production, website northernspiritradio.org. Come to our site, find our archives of the past six and a half years. You'll find links to Vasu and other guests that we've had over the past six and a half years, and you'll find a place to leave comments. You can make donations. You can connect to our programs via iTunes, and we are available via the Pacifica Network. Again, we're speaking with Vasu Murti. He's talking right now about vegetarianism and its roots. And there's just one thing that's an idle piece of curiosity, maybe on my part. But how does one effectively live a life so innocent so as not to even kill an ant? What does one do when there are mosquitoes and so on? How does that get lived out, Vasu? I, I just thought it might be impossible. Good question. I don't know if it's impossible, per se, as um, we should do the least amount of harm. You know, even in everyday ethics among human beings, we recognize that there's the difference between, uh, that's why a lot of, uh, many on the left were outraged, or at least mildly irked, when George W. Bush decided to invade Iraq, you know, his preemptive war against a country that hadn't harmed us and everything. Keith Akers, in a vegetarian source book, when asked about the question of killing insects, he said, there's a difference between ridding oneself of intruders, you know, when they pose a threat to the health or comfort or well-being of, of people in a, in a home environment, versus uh, going out of one's way to deliberately harm or kill something that would be completely harmless to you, like, you know, cows by the billions. And we see that in, in terms of just everyday politics, like the Iraq war. We see that some people were saying, well, you know, Iraq never wasn't a threat to us. So why do we go out of our way to invade them and so forth? And look at the quagmire we got stuck in. So similarly, there's a difference between keeping killing to a minimum when it's unnecessary. We can similarly say mosquitoes. Um, uh, you can use repellents or what have you to keep them away. And Technology could probably create all kinds of way, alternative ways to avoid unnecessarily harming insects. Organic farming, for example, uh, is a good way to address the moral issue of unnecessarily killing insects. Gavrik Matheny, who's with Vegan Action, about a decade ago, in 2000, I think it was, August or September 2000, he was saying that trying to recognize the rights of insects would pretty much make human civilization impossible. The religious communities, of course, can address this in different ways. St. Martin de Porus would sometimes allow mosquitoes to bite him and you know, feed upon him, and he would say, they too are God's creatures, etc. You know, he wouldn't try and swipe them or kill them. And probably find other examples of saints within the Christian tradition whose compassion extended to all creatures in this regard. Similarly, in the Hindu tradition, there are all kinds of ceremonies, for like groundbreaking ceremonies. One is building a house or a home or a temple or any kind of residence or what have you, because living entities are killed during the construction of such a facility. So there's all kinds of ceremonies to atone for the, the sin of killing the living entities. Jain monks refrain from agriculture. They're not allowed to participate in agriculture because there's, you know, earthworms and insects that are killed during the plowing of fields for farming. That process is defective because you're just as guilty. If you eat meat, you know, 
you may think, well, I didn't kill the animal myself. Well, first of all, that's, I think that's hypocritical. If you can't kill an animal yourself, you're paying someone else to kill it. What kind of a predator, what kind of an omnivore is that? You know, who can't kill the animal himself but pay someone else to do the dirty work for them. But even then, you know, if you pay someone, like if you purchase stolen goods, you're just as guilty as the person who stole them. So, you know, even if you say, you say well, I may not be involved in agriculture, but if you're paying someone else for agricultural products, then you're just as much responsible as the person who did the plowing of the fields and indirectly killed the insects and the earthworms, etc. So I don't see quite see the logic in the Jain monks abstaining from agriculture per se. And within Hinduism, it might be argued that that belongs to a particular class within the Hindu social system, Varnashram Dharma, the uh, class system, what later became corrupted as a caste system, the idea that those who are the vaishers, or the merchants, the businessmen, the landowners, the entrepreneurs, they would be the ones who would be engaging in agriculture, which is considered, by the way, our spiritual masters, that agriculture was the noblest of professions. So that's what comes to my mind, is that in this material world, there's no way you're going to have complete, perfect harmonies. One living being is food for another. The material world itself is designed to be a place of suffering, so there's no way you can avoid living without incurring some uh, destruction. Even just by breathing, you're killing bacteria. That isn't an excuse to kill animals by the billions. You, you keep violence to a minimum. Our spiritual master once gave the example about how Christians say, well, Jesus, the historical Jesus might have eaten fish, you know, like the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, etc. So he might have eaten fish, but to use that as an excuse to extrapolate and say, oh, well, then we can kill, erect slaughterhouses and kill cows and other entities by the billions. That's kind of like saying, well, abortion might be acceptable in the hard cases of rape and incest. Then saying abortion on demand throughout the entire nine months of pregnancy for any reason whatsoever, you know, health meaning being vague enough to mean that if a woman just feels slightly depressed, if she can't get an abortion, that would be justification for having her having one. That was was handed down in Roe v. Wade and the companion case, Doe versus Bolton. There's a huge extrapolation going from, well, there might be permissible one of these extreme hard cases, and that's kind of analogous here. Similarly, to argue that just because we can't avoid killing living entities um, in the course of our day-to-day existence, and then going to saying that that justifies unnecessarily killing, that's quite a bit of a stretch to make that kind of, come to that kind of a conclusion. I'd like to go through, Vasu, a number of the arguments that you present in They Shall Not Hurt Nor Destroy. There's a whole number of areas that you look at religiously, ecologically, uh, in terms of pain, in terms of having souls. I don't want to hit all of them. I want people to buy the book and take a look at it because I think there's a wealth of information there. I think virtually any question that someone's going to have about it, I think you've addressed in there with a very complete set of first sources. So let's talk about what are some of the more important reasons in the Western religious traditions that we should care about animals. Throughout the biblical writings, not just in Scripture, but in commentaries, the Talmud, rabbinical commentaries, the writings of the early Church Fathers, commentaries by Protestant reformers as well, up to the present day, there has been within the biblical tradition a concern for animals. In the biblical writings, it's said that humans and animals share a common creation and a shared destiny. This is stated in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19 says, men have no advantage over the animals. And in the biblical tradition, St. John Chrysostom says, holy people are most gentle in their treatment of, of the animals. Surely we should treat the animals with compassion, for they come from the same sources ourselves. 
Uh, he goes on to say that we, the Christian leaders, practice abstinence from the flesh of animals to subdue our bodies. That's more along the lines of asceticism than nonviolence, but he goes on to say the eating of, of animal flesh is polluting, it's of demonical origin, and that was expressly manifest in the early Christian tradition. There is some debate about that. When I gave a presentation on religion and animals at the Red Victorian on Hate Street in San Francisco, yes, the famed Kate Ashbury, a woman, Marina, who uh, is a practicer of the Russian Orthodox faith, she said that the real debate in the early church, you know, when Paul is forced to address vegetarianism, wasn't the ethical treatment of animals, but rather whether or not the food was offered to idols, pagan idols. That was the real concern in the early church. There's some debate about that because the early Romans who wrote about the earliest Christians, they wrote about the, the Christians meeting and offering a prayer to Christ as though he were a god, then taking ordinary and innocent food, is how it's described. And we also find that the descriptions given by the Romans of the earliest Christians was that they were vegetarian and that they were vegetarian because of the ethical treatment of animals. The first Christian hymn writer, Clemens Prudentius, in his, one of his first hymns, he exhorts his fellow Christians not to pollute their hands and their hearts by the slaughter of innocent animals, cows and sheep and so forth. And he points to the nourishing and pleasant foods that are available without shedding blood. It would be hard to prove that Christianity was vegetarian. We know Christianity was pacifist up until the time of Constantine. I mean, since then, only a few denominations have been consistently pacifist, the Quakers among them, of course. But we know that historically Christianity was pacifist. It's possible Christianity was also vegetarian. Keith Akers, in a vegetarian source book, in the 1986 edition, and also in um, Broken Thread, his as-of-yet-unpublished manuscript, he, as a secular scholar, he looks at the history of the early church, and he says, a list of vegetarians in the early church reads like a who's who in early Christianity. You find just not only the early church fathers, he's mentioned like Arius and his opponent Athanasius, you know, they were debating and everything. They were both vegetarians. And so he describes how vegetarianism was, you know, prevalent in the early church. It would be hard to prove, I agree, that Christianity, that it was official church doctrine, or that Christianity began as a vegetarian religion. These things would be hard to prove, and other scholars can, of course, do the research in this area. But certainly, it would be consistent. The whole messianic tradition, Christianity began as a messianic movement within Judaism, and uh, Keith Aker's comments, if the messianic prophecies describe, you know, the world described by the latter prophets, Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, and so forth, of swords and their plowshares, the humans and animals coexisting peacefully. And, and the lions lying down with the lamb. Yes, like the Garden of Eden. And if Christians say Jesus is the Messiah, Keith Aker says some of the best evidence that Jesus was a vegetarian would be found within the Old Testament prophecies. And he says if the Old Testament prophecies are to be taken seriously, it would be hard to imagine Jesus being anything but a vegetarian. Jesus' own brother, James, was a vegetarian, and Orthodox sources within Christianity, Hegesippus in 160 AD, and later Augustine, who repeats that uh, statement by Hegesippus, they acknowledge, as Orthodox sources within Christianity, acknowledge that James was raised a vegetarian lifelong. And if James, the brother of Jesus, was a vegetarian, wouldn't it be logical to assume that Jesus himself was vegetarian? Rin Derry, who's a historian for the North American Vegetarianist Society and who's written extensively entire books on vegetarianism, he said somewhere, and I, I agree with his statement in this regard, that the evidence, scriptural, theological, uh, historical, etc., that Jesus was a vegetarian, is circumstantial at best, but nonetheless it is compelling. Media shouldn't be so quick to dismiss it. You can't just kind of glibly take it for granted that the killing of animals is somehow justified. You know, is this the kind of practice God would ordain? Would a holy person kill animals? Would they eat meat? Is it ethical to do so? The biblical writings emphasize God's concern for animals, not just in the Psalms and in the Old Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, we see concern for animals as well. Jesus justifies his healing on the Sabbath by referring to commandments calling for the uh, humane treatment of animals. 
So we see a continuing concern in Christianity, concern for animals. Christians are the ones claiming to have the religion of grace. And I doubt if they'd win over many followers if they were to publicly advertise themselves as the religion of the Inquisition and the Ku Klux Klan. If we can understand that, start with the premise that killing animals is wrong, then we should ask, what kind of religion would condone this? Wouldn't we question a religion that condones? It's just like nowadays we would question a religion that was still practicing human sacrifice, like the Aztecs or whatever. Shouldn't we question, is this ethical? You know, even if the Bible does condone it, well, the Bible condones slavery and the subjugation of women, too. There are so many practices that, you know, go on in the Bible that we kind of gloss over and don't take seriously. Like, that was Rabbi Zalman Schachter's reaction. He said, are we ashamed to admit that Abraham had two wives because in today's world he'd be called a bigamist? He said, vegetarianism is a response to today's world. Meat-eating, like polygamy, fit into an earlier stage of human history. So there are plenty of reasons why the churches and synagogues and the mosques ought to be addressing the animal rights issues, not only because of the continued concern for animals, that animals are our fellow creatures, but also just in terms of social justice issues. Solomon said, better is a dinner of herbs with peace than a dinner of fatted ox with hatred. And we can see that the amount of grain and resources that go in to a meat-centered diet lead to armed conflict and political instability and take away grains that could be used to feed the hungry. All these different social social justice issues that concern churches or should concern churches and not just during the holiday season either but throughout the year you know are pretty much taken care of in one fell swoop by being vegan by being nonviolent etc etc isn't that at the heart of christianity it seems to me that being vegetarian is a fulfillment of the messianic expectations and prophecies the, the montanists According to writer Stephen Rosen in his 1987 book, Food for the Spirit, Vegetarianism in the World Religions, he says that among the earliest Christian sects, the Montanists were vegetarian in, expect, in expectation of Christ's second coming, which they expect, which the earliest generations of Christians were hoping would ha- were expecting to happen very soon. I've heard that Tertullian, the early church father, was a Montanist or influenced by them. I don't know all the details about that. Catholic theologians could probably fill you in on that much better than I could. But that would explain his writing extensively on vegetarianism and saying how not conducive to spiritual life, it debases man. So we can understand, even if you can't prove literally from the strength from the, from the biblical tradition, or what to speak of within Protestantism, where many churches just, you know, go solo scriptura, as Martin Luther said, just in the Bible itself, it would be very hard to make the case without referring to a lot of extra-canonical material. But it would be very hard to make the case literally. It's consistent with the compassionate teachings of Christianity. Louis Regenstein wrote a book that was instrumental to my being able to put together They Shall Not Her to Destroy. It came out 1991, I purchased a copy at the Festival for the Animals in 1992 for $7. PETA had a table there and they had some literature and they were selling Louis Regenstein's book, Replenish the Earth, which is a history of organized religious um, treatment of animals and the environment. And that book was instrumental for me, or uh, pivotal, because it moved me in a new direction of being able to discuss, not just make theological comments about scripture, but to actually delve into ecclesiastical history, rabbinical commentary, the Talmud, the uh, early church fathers, concern for animals within Catholic and Protestant Christianity to the present day, to add some, no pun intended, to flesh out the material in the Shalom Herder Destroy, so it became the continuing concern for animals within Christianity. So there's no way you can prove that it's absolutely required by Scripture. Even if you say that, that doesn't take us very far, because we see churches taking positions on a number of issues that aren't clearly spelled out in Scripture either. 
Exodus 21 says the fetus is not a person. If two men are fighting and a pregnant woman is injured and the fetus is killed, they have to recompensate upon the damage inflicted upon her, not the fetus. And if the woman is killed, it's punishable by murder. Apologists say, well, the fetus is given some concern, even if it doesn't have personhood. But then in the New Testament, Paul claims Mosaic law is garbage and it's abolished, so whatever concern might have been given to the unborn is gone. And some Christians say they don't, they don't even have to follow Paul, because Paul claims the risen Jesus says to him three times, my grace is sufficient for thee. So they use that as an excuse to say they don't even have to follow Paul, which doesn't make any sense. On the one hand, in Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is warning drunkards, thieves, homosexuals, idolaters, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. On the other hand, he's saying, oh, three times, you can do whatever you want. Okay, well, then why is he giving all these moral instructions to begin with? It doesn't make any sense. And the Christian understanding is that Paul had a thorn in his side and asked the reason Jesus what to do about it. And Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for thee. It was a response to a specific problem, not a license to do as one pleases. And the late Janet Regina Highland, who was raised Catholic but went on to become an evangelical minister and a vegan and author of God's Covenant with Animals, she said they're quoting Paul out of context because Paul in Corinthians says elsewhere, he said, you know, keep my body under subjection lest I become a castaway and not practice what I have preached. So it's like, I agree, there's no way you can make an absolute airtight case. Regina Highland said that herself. She said there's no way you can make an absolute airtight case. We have to argue in terms of religion's highest ideals and social progress. Of course, progressives see that things that way. With regressives or, people or conservatives, it's a lot harder to prove that. You know, if this were the 18th century and you were trying to you know, convince people to abolish slavery, that's not spelled out in Scripture either. So a conservative Christian might say, well, we don't have to free our slaves. That's work. You're asking us to do activity that isn't required of our faith. If it were 100 years ago, we don't have to give women suffrage or equality. That's work. You're asking us to engage in activity or effort or whatever that isn't a part of our faith. 50 years ago, why aren't the Christians supporting civil rights? Would they be saying, oh, that's work, you know, kind of smugly and glibly? I don't know. There are compelling arguments, but it's the progressives who are responding in this direction. We see that, at least that's in my experience. The Christians who are responding favorably to the message of animal rights and vegetarianism, you know, making bread available to feed the hungry, grain for the hungry, etc., are the liberals, the liberals denominations. A uh, vegetarian inter- interpretation of scripture is possible, but it's the kind of interpretation that appeals to progressives, like an anti-capital punishment interpretation of scripture. It would be great to have the conservatives on board with us. You'd think they would understand, just like they see abortion as a crime, and that isn't spelled out clearly in scripture either. You'd think they'd understand, like, oh, animals have the right to life. Just as we oppose stem cell research, the animal rights people are opposed to experimenting upon animals. We've completed about half of our Spirit in Action visit with Vasumurti, author of They Shall Not Hurt or Destroy, Animal Rights and Vegetarianism in the Western Religious Tradition, and of The Liberal Case Against Abortion. More about both of these topics next week when we visit again with Vasumurti for Spirit in Action. And I'll send you out with a pro-vegetarian song by Melanie, I Don't Eat Animals. See you next week. I was just thinking about the way it's supposed to be I'll eat the plants and the fruit from the trees A little bit of wholemeal, some raisins and cheese But I don't eat animals and they don't eat me Oh no, I don't eat animals cause I love them you see I want nothing dead in me I don't eat white flour White sugar makes you rot White could be beautiful But mostly it's not A little bit of wholemeal 
and raisins and cheese But I don't eat animals And they don't eat me Oh no, I don't eat animals Cause I love them, you see I don't eat animals I want nothing dead in me A little bit of wholemeal Some raisins and cheese Nothing dead in me You know, I'll become life So that life will become me You know, I'll live on life So that life will become me The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song.